we want to continue our study looking at what the Bible says about the church. It's a great study to be able to understand the uh, ministry and mission of the church is to understand the meaning of the church. And what we've covered so far is on the screen behind me. Those simple points, those seven points help us to understand the meaning of the church. We've gone from the, the, the plan, the church is the plan of the Son of God, to the church is the possession of the living God. And it's the pillar of the truth of God, the picture of the love of God, the product of the grace of God. The church simply is the priority of the people of God. It's the place of the worship of God. And today we want to continue by looking at point number eight, and that is to understand that the church is the protector and the proclaimer of the gospel of God. The church is the protector and the proclaimer of the gospel of God. In fact, as you proclaim the gospel, if you proclaim it accurately, you will effectively protect it. But the reason the gospel is not protected today is because we don't proclaim it as it should be proclaimed as it is written in the scriptures. For sadly, over the years, the gospel has has been given way to so much erosion. It's sad to say, we're, we're afraid to say too much to someone for fear that we might turn them off. Or we're afraid to say certain things about the gospel to people for fear that they might reject the gospel. So that we withhold certain aspects of the gospel so that we might get someone to say yes and repeat the sinner's prayer. But we have diluted the gospel over the years so badly that the gospel presented in most churches can be accepted by any kind of denomination or any kind of religion across the world. We've gone from six steps to peace with God to five things that God wants you to know to the four spiritual laws to three truths you can't live without to two issues you must settle today to one way to heaven. We have minimized the gospel so much that people don't even know what they believe anymore. In fact, it was A.W. Tozer in his book, The Incredible Christian, who said this, in our eagerness to make converts, I'm afraid that we have lately been guilty of using the technique of the modern salesmanship, which is, of course, to present only the desirable qualities in a product and ignore the rest. We go to men and offer them a cozy home on the sunny side of the bray, if they will but accept Christ, he will give them peace of mind, solve their problems, prosper their business, protect their families, keep them happy all day long. They believe us and come. And the first cold wind sends them shivering to some counselor to find out what has gone wrong. And that is the last we hear of many of them. By offering our hearers a sweetness and light gospel, and promising every taker a place on the sunny side of the bray, we not only cruelly deceive them, but we guarantee also a high casualty rate among converts won on such terms. 
That's just so true. Why is it people come to church because somehow they, they heard the gospel and they're here for a while, but then all of a sudden they're gone? What happened to them? Does someone not explain to them the truths of the gospel clearly and accurately? The reason Jesus had so little followers is because he didn't leave out anything. And when people heard him speak, they were more turned off by what he said than turned on to what he said because he called them into account. And he is and was the greatest evangelist. So if you want to learn about the gospel, you have to learn about it from Christ himself to understand exactly what it is we are to say. Amen. So what is it we are to say? Listen to what Paul says in Acts chapter 20. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 20 as he talks to the Ephesian elders to explain to them as he gets ready to leave what he did among them. It will help you understand how it is we are to be the accurate presenters of the entirety of the gospel. Paul says in Acts 20, verse number 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which come upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Now stop right there. I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. The word shrink back is a medical term. It was used of withholding food from patients. Paul says, I didn't withhold any of the food of the gospel. I gave it all to you. I spread a table for you that would encompass every aspect of the gospel and left nothing out because all of it is profitable. Now, that's a very important word because think about that. Do we understand in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when the Bible says that God's word is the inspired word, the God-breathed word, and the God-breathed word is the only thing that's profitable. He says it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. That the man of God will be thoroughly equipped unto all good deeds. Now, you know what? We would say we believe that. But let me give you an example on how we show we don't believe that. Because if we were to give a series of messages on prophecy, some people wouldn't come because they're not interested in prophecy or they're not interested in what's going to happen down the, down the line. In essence, what you're saying is that's not profitable for me. So therefore, I'm not going to go hear a sermon on prophecy. 
you've just denied 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, because it says that all Scripture is profitable. We have a series on Wednesday nights about marriage, and people say, well, my marriage is fine, or I don't need to go because I'm not married. You've just said that Scripture is not profitable for me. You've just said that sermons on marriage and sermons on the family are not profitable for me. You've just denied the fact that 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all Scripture is profitable so that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped, thoroughly finished unto all good deeds. All Scripture, once preached and given, is profitable in such a way that if you go to hear a prophecy series or you go to hear a spiritual gift series or you go to hear a prayer series, or you go to hear a series on marriage, if it's preached from the Word, it will be absolutely essential for the man of God to be thoroughly equipped unto all good works. That's very important to understand that. Because you see, we say, well, that doesn't apply to me. What do you mean it doesn't apply to you? It all applies to you. It's the Word of God. And God's word is applicable to all of us. And Paul says, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you that which was profitable. So he goes down and says this. He says, and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying, solemnly giving testimony to that which is true to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, and now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose or counsel of God. What a statement. Why was Paul's ministry so effective? Because he didn't hold anything back. He made sure they got everything. This is not just a a New Testament teaching. This is an Old Testament teaching. Listen to what the psalmist says. Psalm 40, verse number 9. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. In other words, there's nothing concealed. There's nothing hidden. Everything is laid bare. Everything is open. Everything is given. So people will know exactly what it is they're putting their faith and trust in. Very important. So listen to what the Lord says to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33. Now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth, 
and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked man from the way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require of your hand. But if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn from his way, he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. So God tells Ezekiel, you're a prophet of mine. I'm going to tell you what to say. I'm going to tell you that what you need to say is so important that everybody needs to hear it. But if you don't say what I tell you to say, and the wicked man dies in a sin, that's on you. Think about that. But if you tell him about the destiny of his wickedness, because I told you what to say, and he dies, it's on him because he's held accountable. I'm holding you accountable to make sure you tell the truth. Have you ever noticed how easy it is for us to withhold the hard sayings of Jesus in the gospel presentation? For fear that someone might not give their life to Christ. As if whatever I say is going to persuade somebody. It's the Spirit of God that draws man to himself. And the way he does it is through the power of his word. So I give his word undiluted in all of its truth so people will know what it is they believe. So having said that, what do I need to remember when I present the gospel? I'm going to give you some principles. They're all going to be on the board for you this week and next week. <clears throat> but I want to give them to you Excuse me, so you understand that there are certain things you cannot leave out when you're talking to people about the gospel. Let's begin with this one. <clears throat> Number one, <coughs> the generosity of God. <coughs> Let's begin with the generosity of God. I want you to remember that the gospel is not a plan that you tell. The gospel is a person you trust. We look at the gospel as a plan, as somehow there's this plan that I must present. You're not presenting a plan, you're presenting a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Our Lord. Thank you, Lindsay. Appreciate that. And so, therefore, you must remember the generosity of God. There are 25 words in the Scriptures. In one verse. 25 of the most promising words. 25 of the most powerful words. 25 of the most purposeful words words in all of Scripture, and they are the 25 most popular words, and you know them. For God, the divine person, so loved the world, the divine passion, that he gave 
the divine provision, his only begotten son, the divine pathway, right? And then it says these words, that whoever believes in him, that's the divine provision, shall not perish, that's the divine pardon, but shall have everlasting life, the divine promise. 25 of the most popular words are the most powerful, productive, and personal words in Scripture. Whenever you present the gospel, you're presenting a person. He's the, he is the good news that brings great, no, great joy, right? Christ is the good news. And so when presenting the gospel, you're presenting the person of Jesus Christ himself. You want people to see Christ when you tell them about eternal life because he is the eternal God. So important. So the Bible says over in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, these words, verse number 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, Paul says, I am a preacher. And God desires all men to be saved. This is the generosity of God. The goodness of God. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse number 4, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The goodness of God, the kindness of God, he is so patient, he is so kind. And it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. And so whatever we do in our presentation of the Christ, we are presenting the generosity of God. But you also must remember that in presenting the generosity of God, you must present the depravity of man. The depravity of man, that's number two. That is the fact that man is a sinner. He is corrupted in every aspect of his life because he is spiritually separated from God. In fact, it is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse number 1, where Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, you were dead. Spiritually, 
and you were defiled, and you were depraved, and, and, and you, you're just corrupted. You're, you're a sinner. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? It's your sins that separate you from your God. So you must present to people the depravity of man, that man is incapable of saving himself. Because he's dead, he can't do anything unless God does it for him. He is incapable of of saving himself. And so we want to present to people the fact that they are sinners and they are separated from God. Our Lord was a master at this. He was so great on how he did this. In fact, turn with me to Luke's gospel, the fourth chapter. Luke's gospel, the fourth chapter. Early on in the ministry of Jesus, he is preaching from place to place, from village to village. He's invited back to his hometown in Nazareth. And there he is, asked to preach in the synagogue on the Sabbath. This is great. Mary and Joseph must have been so proud that their son was up going to present the truth of the word of the Lord. And so this is what the Bible says in Luke 4. It says, verse 17, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. They closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your teaching. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? So here's Jesus. And there are required readings in the synagogue. And it just so happens in the providence of God that the reading for the day is Isaiah chapter 61. And when he talks about the Spirit of the Lord being upon him, he was talking about the fact that the Messiah is speaking and the the Messiah would have the Spirit of God on him. Go back to Isaiah chapter 41, go back to Isaiah chapter 11, and the Messiah was known by coming with the Spirit of God upon him. So when the Messiah is speaking in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to the captive, to the oppressed, to those who are downtrodden, to those who are greatly in need, to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord, which is the year of redemption. He stops right there. Because the next phrase in Isaiah 61 verse number 2 is, and the day of vengeance. But it wasn't the day of vengeance. So he stopped, closed the book, because it was the the favorable year of our Lord. It was the day of redemption for Israel. So he said, today, 
all these words that I'm speaking have now been fulfilled in your hearing. And they marveled. They wondered about the gracious words that came from his lips. They marveled at how he said what he said. But he knew they didn't get it. He knew, because he's God, he's omniscient, he knows what's in man, right? So he knows that they didn't get it. But they marveled. Like those in in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, when it was all done preaching, people marveled at the words that he spoke, saying that no man has ever spoken like this man speaks. Because there was no greater preacher that ever lived than Jesus. And these are the words of the Lord. And yet he knew that they didn't understand he was talking to them. Because you see, they didn't see themselves as poor spiritually, begging poor. Well, why? They were descendants of Abraham. And they were the people of God. They saw themselves poor physically, but not poor spiritually. They didn't see themselves as prisoners spiritually either. They saw themselves as prisoners or captive of Rome, under the tyranny of Rome, but they didn't see themselves as spiritually captivated by Satan. That's why Christ told the religious establishment in John chapter 8, you are of your father, the devil. But they didn't see themselves that way. And they didn't see themselves as blind spiritually or oppressed because of sin. So he's describing their spiritual condition. They didn't see it. So he says this, verse 23. He said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. I know what you're thinking. You want me to prove myself. You want me to prove through a series of miracles that I really am the Messiah. Because after all, he had done miracles in Capernaum, and Capernaum was his ministry based during his Galilean ministry. And I'm sure that the, those in Nazareth had heard about all the miracles at Capernaum. And maybe there was a, 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 a citywide war between the two as to which was the better city. And, and uh, Capernaum was, re, was winning out because more miracles were done there. And, and nothing was done in Nazareth. So he says, no doubt that you're going to want me to do what I've done in Capernaum. Because you want me to prove I'm the Messiah. This is what he says. He said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. That's going to take him back to the Old Testament. And they're all going to know the stories. Why? Because they're Jews. They know their Old Testament history. He says, a prophet is not welcome in his own hometown. So let me give you two prophets. 
with Elijah and with Elisha. Of course, they would know Elijah and Elisha well. And so he says, there were in the days of Elijah many widows. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. When Elijah was ministering, Ahab was the king. He was a wicked king. He was married to a Gentile woman named Jezebel. And everybody hated Jezebel. I even think Ahab hated Jezebel. I don't know. But they just didn't get along at all. And so Israel knows the story well. He says during the famine, God sent a judgment for three and a half years. Because of apostate, Israel's idol worship of Baal led by Ahab and Jezebel. So he says, this guy was shut up for three and a half, or three years and six months, three and a half years, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them. None of who? None of the widows in Israel. Not one Jewish widow was he sent to. And they were in need. There was a famine in the land. But Elijah wasn't sent to a Jewish widow. Instead, it says, he sent to none none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. He was sent to a Gentile woman. Now, Jezebel, she was from Sidon. It was a pagan place. And Elijah was sent to a pagan place, to a pagan woman, a Gentile woman, and there she believed in the Lord God of Israel. And then it says, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. In other words, during Elisha's ministry, Leprosy was everywhere. But Elisha wasn't sent to Jewish lepers. He was sent to a military commander who fought against Israel. And he was a pagan Gentile and he was a leper. He was really unclean. But that's where Elisha was sent. And of course, you know the story of Naaman, his humility in his conversion to the Lord God of Israel. So you read on, it says this, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Why? Just one minute ago, they were saying, ah, this is Joseph's boy. Oh, he speaks so well. We're so proud of our hometown son. This is great. But when he goes from the fact of his generosity to their depravity, and they not seeing themselves as poor, blind, imprisoned, and oppressed because of their sin, they were furious. How dare you talk to us about Gentile conversions? How dare you compare us to Gentile people who humbled themselves. We are the children of Abraham. We are descendants of of Abraham. 
We have a promise given to us by God. We are God's chosen people. How dare you come in here, Jesus, and tell us that we are blind spiritually to the truth, that we're imprisoned, and that we are destitute. How dare you? They were so enraged with him, the text tells us, they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Wow. You go from absolute epitome of joy to wanting to kill the guy in one brief moment. But passing through them, or through the midst, he went his way. You see, Jesus said in Mark's gospel, he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So in your gospel presentation, you must remember, not just the generosity of God, but the depravity of man. Man is a sinner. He's separated from God. He needs to be forgiven. He's loved by God, but he needs to be forgiven by God. And therefore, he must recognize that he's a sinner, that he might come to God in faith and repentance. Why? Because of number three, the certainty of judgment. The certainty of judgment. You want to give them the generosity of God. You want to give them the depravity of man. But you also want to tell them about the certainty of judgment. It's appointed that a man wants to die, Hebrews 9.27. After that, the judgment. Judgment's coming. One day, every man, every woman will stand before God. In Revelation 20, it talks about the unbeliever standing before the great white throne judgment. And the books are opened, right? The book of life is open, but the books are opened. All the books recording the deeds of all the unsaved. And the sea gives up its debt. The grave gives up its debt. Why? It's the second resurrection. They must stand before the judgment of God. Because there's a certainty of a coming judgment. It is so important to understand this. Jesus would always talk about this. In fact, Jesus was such a great preacher that when he ended the majority of his sermons, he ended on a negative note. You go to seminary seminary today and you go to a homiletics class, they're going to tell you you need to end on a good note, not a bad note. You need to end with, with, a, with an upper, not a downer. You, you want to know people leaving with, with, with the negativity of the sermon. And I'm like, why? Jesus did. Jesus was the most negative preacher that ever existed. He was always telling people, if you don't do this, you're in big trouble. Big trouble. You're going to perish. In fact, in fact, the greatest illustration of this is, is Luke 13. Remember the story in Luke chapter 13 when 
there was some, in fact, turn to Luke 13, real quick. Luke chapter 13. Slower you turn, the longer my sermon. Luke chapter 13. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present, chapter 13, verse number one, who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. There were some Galileans who were going to worship God, and, and, and Pilate took them and cut them up with their sacrifices. They had gone to worship God, and Pilate sliced them and diced them. An act of terrorism. And Jesus said to them, we need to pray for their families. No, that's not what he said. That's not what he said. You would think he would say that. Those poor families, those poor women who are left without husbands, those poor children who are left without parents, we should pray for them. Jesus didn't say that. That's what we say. But we're not the ultimate preachers in life. Jesus is. So Jesus says this. Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Do you think they did something so bad that they deserved this kind of death? He says, I tell you, no. They weren't worse sinners than you or me. He says, these words, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. That's all he says. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. There's a certainty of judgment that's going to come. You see, our problem is that we're focused on the here and now. Christ is always focused on the then and there. He's focused on what's going to happen in the future. Christ is focused on eternity. We're focused on the here and now. Christ is always looking into the future because eternity is forever. We're looking at the present. Christ is looking at the future. And Christ says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And then he says, or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I mean, those, those 18 people that happened to be walking by and the Tower of Siloam just fell over. Maybe it wasn't constructed right. Maybe, it was, maybe there was an earthquake. I don't know. But the, the whole tower fell over and crushed and killed 18 people. This was a, a natural disaster. This just happened. They didn't do anything wrong. They were just walking by. And they were killed. Again, he didn't say anything about their families, their cities, their homes, those who were left behind. Doesn't say anything except this. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He was concerned about people's eternal destiny. We just aren't that concerned about it. But Jesus is. 
So he is drawing people to think about their future, their eternality. He wants them to realize, look, your friends died when the tower fell over. Some of your friends were slain when they went to go worship the Lord. They weren't worse sinners than you. They weren't worse off than you. They weren't immoral, adulterous, idolatrous people where they were being killed because of their great sin. No, everybody is a sinner. Everybody is separated from God. And unless you're prepared to die on the day of your death, you will enter into eternal damnation unless you repent and turn from your sin. Christ was so concerned about the certainty of death. He is trying to save people from himself. Tim talked about it earlier. When God saves you, he saves you from himself. He saves you from the God of wrath. And so he is so concerned that you are saved from him, he's going to focus his sermons on your eternal destiny that you might not die and spend eternity in hell. Because you see, there's coming a judgment, the certainty of judgment. And with that, number four, comes the eternality of heaven and hell. The eternality of heaven and hell. They are forever. And I'm going to give you one verse to prove that. There are many of them. It's in Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, Christ says these words. He talks about the sheep goat judgment in Matthew 25. I'm sorry, Matthew 25, verse 46. It says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Ionios is a word that speaks of the eternality of God. He is the eternal God. And only the eternal God can provide eternal life. And those who do not embrace him as Lord and Savior enter into eternal damnation. It's forever. There are a lot of religions today, Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian science, that speak about annihilationism. In fact, there were some theologians, some pretty good theologians, that over the years turned what they believed about the eternal separation of man from God in hell to believe in annihilationism. That is, you just go out of existence. Well, th- that's just the wrong view of what death is, because death is not going out of existence. Death is just a separation of soul from body or body and soul from God for all eternity. But it's not going out of existence. But we want to believe that, that hell is not forever, that God will ultimately allow all to either go out of existence or they believe in universalism, which means that Ultimately, all will be saved anyway, and they'll be saved out of hell. Well, that's not true either. Because it's eternal damnation, it's eternal hell. When you present the gospel, you must help people understand 
the generosity of God. But on the flip side, the depravity of man, the certainty of judgment, the eternality of heaven and hell. But there's more. And number five is the identity of the Messiah. The identity of the Messiah. Because you see, there's only one person who can save you from all that. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah of Israel. The Messiah of God. The true Messiah. Jesus our Lord. Only one. And so in your presentation of the gospel, you give people hope from eternal separation from God. You give them hope of eternal life. It only comes to one person. There is no other name in heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. For one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You must present to them the identity of the Messiah. And we'll pick this up next week. Lord willing, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you give us this morning to look into the word of the Lord. Our prayer, Father, is that each and every one of us would understand that when we present the truth of the Christ to others, that we truly present you in all of your glory and splendor. We are presenting a person to people who need to embrace him. And our prayer, Father, is that we present you accurately in all of your glory, and that we would be used as vessels for your kingdom's sake until you come again, as you most surely will. In Jesus' name, amen.